Seriously, thank you all for swimming over here this afternoon. Um, I was going to start off my introduction by saying something like this. Um, if we could measure in inches one's exuberance or passion for their subject, I think Ed Berger would probably be the tallest human on the planet. <laughs> but this morning, I listened to him give his first classroom lecture. And I think I could replace inches by millimeters, and he'd still be the tallest human being on this planet. It, it's a great pleasure to have you here, Ed. Um, he has earned a reputation for giving energetic, enthusiastic, and enlightening presentations all over the country. Um, what I'd like to do, I don't want to take too much time away from him, so I'm going to give you a very skeletal sketch of his uh, academic career to date. As, as Heidi mentioned, he's the Guadino Scholar at Williams College in Massachusetts. He's been there since 1990. Um, he earned his PhD in mathematics at the University of Texas in Austin in 1990. And prior to that, he got his bachelor's degree at Connecticut College. I think in, is that New London? His area of research is algebraic number theory and combinatorics, and to date he's written more than 40 papers, several highly acclaimed textbooks. He's also appeared several times on the Discovery Channel, on NBC, he's been on NPR. Uh, he has been an advisor for the hit TV show Numbers. How many of you watch that show? Yeah, it's a pretty popular show. Well, uh, I could go on and on and on. He's won several teaching awards, including the Reader's Digest, the Top 100 Teachers in America, the Distinguished uh, Teaching Award from the Mathematical Association of America, several other teaching honors throughout the country. He's given uh, many endowed lectures throughout the country. You know, I could go on and on, but I think it's time to turn it over to Ed, so if you would please walk Edward. Thank you. Thank you very much. So um, this is fun, isn't it? Are you having fun? I'm enjoying this, by the way. I'm loving this. So I, I came up with this title, which I'm, I'm very proud of. I hope you like it. The Art of Exploring Invisible Worlds. I always believe in having two titles. So if you don't like that, then you go to the second title, which is Thinking Through the Fourth Dimension. And I'm going to come back and talk about the first title at the end of the talk, because I think it's really good. So I'll save it for the end. And, and I'll spend the rest of the time talking about the second title, which is Thinking Through the Fourth Dimension. And basically what I want to do... Oh, by the way, I've got to do a, um, a, a candid shot. Hold on one second, please. Are you ready? You ready? Okay, good. Okay, thank you. All right, good. Okay. So... So... What I want to think about for the, the next few minutes is the power of thinking mathematically. And it doesn't matter whether you like math or hate math or whether you're a math person or you're not a real math person, you're kind of a math phobe. There's great power in looking at the world through a mathematical lens and thinking mathematically. And it doesn't mean solving for x. There'll be no x's at all in this whole talk. Don't worry about it. And so what I want us to do is take a journey to discover what it's like to think like a math person and to offer an invitation for you to embrace that mindset no matter what you're studying. And so I want to think mathematically, and I'm going to do that through a journey through the fourth dimension, the mathematical idea of the fourth dimension. Okay, so what is the fourth dimension? The, the first thing that a math mind does is to ask, huh, what do these things mean? So what does dimension even mean? So if you want to have a, a humanities definition of, of uh, dimension, think about degrees of spatial freedom. How much freedom do you have? If you have lots of freedom to move around, then in fact you're living in a, in a high dimensional space. And if you feel somewhat confined in some sense, then you're living in a low dimensional space. That gives you kind of a, a feeling definition. But in mathematics we want rigor, so things have to be precise. So let me tell you exactly how I want us to think about dimension uh, this afternoon. I want us to think about the fewest pieces of information 
that you have to give me in order for me to locate where you are in your universe, in your geometric universe. So the, few, the fewest pieces of information, that will determine the dimension. So, so armed with that as a, as a thought, let's take a look at some examples and warm up to this. And our goal is to see if we can understand the, the fourth dimension, whatever that is. Okay, so here we go. What is the smallest dimension that, that we can imagine? So dimension is going to represent a number, right? It's going to represent the fewest pieces of information that does something. So I just want, and you're supposed to yell out, by the way, and if you're right or wrong, it doesn't matter. What's the smallest dimension you can think of? Zero, exactly. Zero dimensional space. And zero dimensional space, that universe, I'm going to draw you an artist's rendition of that. It would be this. What do you think? You see that? It's a dot. Now, it really is an artist's rendition of a dot. So, I mean, if you look at it, like, you know, you, you think of a point like this, right? You've all, you know, taken math, and so you've seen lots of points in your lives, and it looks like this, right? It looks quite friendly, you know, nice and round and smooth, marble-like, and so forth, right? But this is just a, a depiction. A real point has zero thickness. So, in fact, if you really want to get a better sense of what zero-dimensional space looks like, take a, a pushpin like this, and look at the very, very end of that pushpin. That very end of the pushpin is pointing to zero-dimensional space. So you can't even see it. It's invisible. And if you, if you touch it, by the way, it hurts. So uh, Heidi, take your finger and just go like this. Tell me if it hurts. Yeah, it hurts. You see, you think of zero-dimensional space as, as fun and round. No, it's painful. But, but the great thing is that everything is there. There are no pieces of information that are required. So if you lived in zero-dimensional space, you'd be at home by now because everything is there. There's no place to move. So that's awesome. So it's confining, but at least it's sharp. So that's kind of cool. So that's the smallest dimension. Now the next dimension up would be one-dimensional space. And geometrically, how do you think we could represent that? Someone yell out something. A line. Exactly. A line. So let me show you what this would look like. You think like a, a number line, like the kind of thing you saw when you were a little kid. They were on our desks in the classroom. They look like this. If you were in the honors class, that had negative numbers. <laughs> and so forth. And you see, so the entire universe you can view as like one really long street. That's the whole world you're living in. It's just one long street. And so if you want to tell me where you are on this long street, all you have to do is give me your address, right? your street number. So for example, if you say three, that's one piece of information, and I go right to three, and there you are. You see? So one piece of information is all needed. That is one-dimensional space. OK, now we can speed things up. Two dimensions. So this would be like the, the sheet of paper right here. And so in math, we sometimes write it like this. There's like x and y, but who cares? The point is, there are now lots of streets. So you have to tell me what street you're on, which would kind of be the height. And then once you tell me that, that's like the y, then you have to tell me what your address is. That's like the x. And so I need like an x and a y. And that identifies a point. So the piece of paper is two-dimensional. Three dimensions, of course, is the world in which we live. And it's hard to draw here, but I'll give you my artist's rendition. Look how awesome this is. Right? So it's the space that you're used to, and you need three pieces of information. You have to first tell me what street you're on. Okay, I'm on this street. Then you have to tell me your street address. I'm over here, so I come over to here. And then you have to tell me what floor you're on. Are you in the basement? Are you in the penthouse? And you go up, and those are three pieces of information. So now, continuing, how would you explain to someone what a four-dimensional world is? It's a world in which you need what? Four pieces of information in order for you to totally determine where you are. So how would you draw that? Uh, OK, that didn't work. OK, so that wasn't good. OK, but the lesson is that we are going to try to gain an insight and try to gain some kind of understanding into this world, which we can't see, which is invisible, by, by saying, this is too hard. And so here's the next lesson of math thinking that I urge you to embrace. When you're faced with really, really hard challenges in life, don't do it. 
Never take on difficult challenges because you'll never get them and you'll be frustrated and so forth. In fact, use this on your next exam. The next time you're taking an exam and there's a question you don't know how to do, write in a very legible font, I don't know how to do it. And they have to give you full credit because you're correct. <laughs> you see? Right. So try that and see how that works for you. So instead of doing something that's hard, what mathematicians and scientists do is they create. They create easier questions. And in this case, what we're going to do is we're going to create easier questions that will revolve around not trying to grasp the fourth dimension, but try to get to the fourth dimension by arguing by analogy. And so we're going to try to look at smaller dimensions which seem familiar to us, and we're going to actually then try to build our intellectual momentum to take us to the fourth dimension. So we're going to go back and we're going to try to study uh, a smaller dimension, which in this case will be the second dimension. And there's a great book that you might enjoy reading. It's called Flatland by Edwin Abbott, written in the late 1800s. It's actually a motion picture. You could actually watch the movie of it if you want. And there's a sequel, if you could imagine. And the sequel actually involves people from Baylor University. So maybe you'll see cameras around campus filming the fourth dimension. Okay, or uh, maybe not. Okay, anyway, well, what I want us to do is I want us to think about experiments in the second dimension and then constantly use the insights we build to try to make a discovery about the world we can't see, the fourth dimension. So the first basic question that I want to ask is, suppose that I were a two-dimensional creature. So suppose that my entire universe was in fact this sheet of paper. This is my entire world. The first question that I would ask is, what would I look like? What would I look like? How would you draw me? If someone, if I asked you to draw me, how would you draw me on the sheet of paper? Now, I would hope you might draw this. <laughs> but the problem is, more than likely, people tend to draw this, which is very sad. Okay. But the good news is that while this seems like a reasonable drawing of me, unfortunately, it's actually wrong. It's actually wrong. It's actually wrong. And so this is really interesting because even if you don't like math, it's interesting to realize that sometimes it's difficult to empathize with people that just have different beliefs and live in different worlds. And it's not so easy to kind of grasp their lives and even how they look. And so in this case, for example, uh, this is really wrong. Now, why is this wrong? Well, first of all, let's just zoom in on my, on my face. Okay, so here's that drawing again. Very handsome. And I want you to look at my eyes, my beautiful brown eyes. And the question is, what do I see? Remember, my universe is the sheet of paper. So let's look out and see what I see. So if I take my eyeball and just draw a line of sight, I see the inside of the frame of my glasses and my eyebrow. And then the same thing here. In fact, the glasses are actually blocking. They're not helping me see. They're preventing me from seeing. And if I didn't have my glasses, this is still wrong because my eyes are inside my head. Now, where are our eyes? Notice that our eyes are at the interface between the outside world and the inside world of ours. And these eyes are not, because the outside world is, is, is not there, it's over here. So my eye should somehow be like this, looking out. It's weird. You see, you have a different vantage point of my universe. You have a panoramic view of my entire universe at once. But you've got to empathize and you've got to put yourself in a position of living in my world, of being in my world and seeing what that's like. And so the eye would be here. Now, that's not so bad. I don't care about seeing. But come back to the original picture and suppose that I wanted to eat something. So suppose there's like a nice two-dimensional ice cream, which I love, by the way. So here's two-dimensional ice cream, and I'm going to now eat it. So I'm going to slide that two-dimensional ice cream and, and eat it. And here it goes. Whoop. Do you see? It's not working so well. Because the ice cream just gets smashed across my face. It can't make it because my mouth is located on the inside of my body. Now, our mouths are not located inside of us. They're, again, at the interface between the outside world and the inside world so we can actually eat ice cream. 
And so it's interesting to realize that this picture, while it seems reasonable, is really wrong. Is really wrong. How would I look? My mouth would have to be on the, on the outside, so my eye would have to be looking out. My, my nose would be like this. I'd begin to kind of get like a, a profile. In fact, you would see my entire eye. And can you imagine what else you would see? You would see everything inside of me. And so what would you see, in fact? What, name something that you would see inside of me. My brain, exactly. Thank you. So, this is a slightly better artist rendition of what I might look like. Can you see that? So, so there's my eye. You can see now I can see out. And there's my nose. There's my mouth. I can eat ice cream. But from your vantage point, from your vantage point, you can see everything. You can see my brain. You can see my heart. You can see my stomach. You can see my lungs. Notice they're nice and white. I don't smoke. You can see everything. Now, argue by analogy. What would we look like to a creature that was existing in this extra degree of freedom, in the fourth dimension? Just like you're looking at my world and seeing this panoramic, what would the fourth dimensional creature see when they look at you? Someone yell some stuff out. What? Yeah, you would see your brain, and what else? The heart? We would just be totally open, just like I am totally open to you. Although, if another two-dimensional creature were looking at me, they would not... Okay, let me just draw it like this. I'll just represent it like this. They would not see that stuff, because my skin, you see, would be preventing you from seeing me. But as three-dimensional creatures, you see it all. And so a four-dimensional creature would see it all as well. In fact, the closest thing I can explain how we might look is Patrick. Patrick, would you please stand up? Everyone look at Patrick. That's kind of a little bit of what we would look like. We would look totally open. Thank you, Patrick. Give Patrick a hand. Nicely done. He deliberately wore all that outfit for me, and I appreciate it. So we would look totally exposed, just like this. All our insides would be, would be open and available. And the cool thing is that notice that if we had a three-dimensional surgeon, that person can perform surgery on the two-dimensional me without ever cutting my one-dimensional skin open. Do you see it? Suppose you wanted to give me like a lobotomy. You just have to go boop, 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 and you're touching my brain right now, and you're never touching my skin. And arguing by analogy, if we could harness that extra degree of freedom, if we could get to the, the, the geometry of the fourth dimension, we would never have to cut our skin open to do any kind of surgery because we would already be open in that direction. We would be a total open book, and a surgeon could just come in and literally massage our heart or do whatever that person needs to do. So it's an interesting vantage point. It's an interesting vantage point. So, okay, a little weird. So let's do some experiments so you can kind of build some intuition. The idea here is to build intuitions into worlds that we can't see. So here's the two-dimensional me. And I'm delighted and, and honored to, to say that the two-dimensional we, me, is up for the two-dimensional cherry prize, which is awesome. Very happy. Now, there, here I got an actual check, which, by the way, I promise I will cash. Um, but the two-dimensional me gets a two-dimensional bar of gold, which, by the way, you might want to consider for future years, a three-dimensional bar of gold might be quite a nice gift to give the recipient. Just a little FYI. Okay, so, so I'm all excited because I have this two-dimensional bar of gold, but, of course, I want to protect it. I want to actually seal it up and make sure that no one's going to steal it. So I'm going to build a two-dimensional vault, a two-dimensional vault, and here's how it's going to look. I'm going to do it right now live. Here we go. You ready? Two-dimensional vault. It's really thick. Do you see it? Oh, my. Okay, don't. See, it's really thick. Woo! Okay, and you're saying, well, wait a minute, Ed. Where's the door? Okay, that's a good question. That's a fair question. Everyone calm down. The door is right here. Here we go. Here's the door. You see? Let me show you how it works. You see, it's sealed. Open, whoop, close. Whoop. You see? So there it is. So now it's totally sealed. Now it's totally sealed, and I stand just like this. Notice I can see this side and this side. 
I get a trusted friend, someone that I really know I can trust, and I put her right here, put her eye right here, so she can see these two sides. So do you agree that right now, in this world of two dimensions, this thing is completely guarded? If anyone were to come in, in my world, and try to open the vault, one of us would see. So it's totally sealed. There's no way to get in. But what if we use the extra degree of freedom of the third dimension? So now I'd like a volunteer from the studio audience to come up here really, really fast and help me out. Who would like this really, really fast? Volunteer. Yes, what's your name? Ben. Give a hand for Ben. Ben, come on up here. Awesome. Thanks a lot. How are you? Good. Come up here. All right, Ben. Now, I know that you're an honest guy, but for the moment, I want you to pretend to be a three-dimensional thief. Okay, your job, Ben, is to never touch the vault, but I want you to steal the gold. Do it very slowly, and I want you to watch this. Watch it. Here we go. Okay, now, what did we see here? Anything? Nothing. The, the box remained totally sealed. The box remained totally sealed. And so suppose that now I want to cash in the cherry thing because I'm hungry, and so I open this up, and I look inside. I'm totally shocked because it disappeared. And how could it disappear when, in fact, we were guarding it the whole time? It was totally sealed. But with the extra degree of freedom, Ben was able to go in, reach, and just grab it in this extra degree. Give Ben a hand. Thanks so much, Ben. Ben, wait, this is for you. Ben, this is good. Great. All right. So that's kind of hard to, to fathom, right? How would you think about this? So let me show you what it would be like. I'll try to enact it right now. So here's my, my vault. And here's my prize. It's a big prize. Okay? So here's the big prize. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the big prize in the vault, and I'm going to close it up. So now it's all closed. I seal it up. And now you're going to be my eyes. I want you to watch this thing now from all directions. And I'm watching it from the top. You guys watch it from the... Well, you're watching it from the top, and you guys are watching it from the bottom. I'm watching it from this side. You can see it's totally sealed. As long as all our eyes are upon it, we know that no one could come in and take it out. But what if there were someone in the fourth dimension? How would this box look? It would look totally open, just like the vault. And so a four-dimensional Ben could right now, as we speak, put his hand in on that opened fourth-dimensional face and just grab it out. And if he were to do that, if we were to open this, what would it look like? It would look like the box was empty. Yeah, see? Weird, right? Thank you very much. No, don't applaud. Don't applaud, please. Okay. So, so that is weird. That's exactly how it would appear. Things would be disappearing or reappearing. So, so let me try to give you one last, one last a little example to kind of give you a sense of how this would work intuitively. And then we're going to have some fun actually thinking about a little bit of geometry. Okay, so here's one last example. So even though I'm, I'm up for this thing, uh, i got to be honest. And so if you're on the committee, you should listen. Uh, the two-dimensional Williams students, uh, they're not so keen on me. I give a lot of homework, so they don't really like me. And so what they do every once in a while is they will put down a two-dimensional killer bee, which really scares me because that killer bee, if it, if it touches me, I'm dead. You know? And so the students are really hopeful. So what I do instead is I put a one-dimensional, like, rope, a lasso, and I completely surround... Ooh, my goodness, hold on, sorry. I completely surround it, and it would look like this. It would look like that. So notice that now it's impossible for the two-dimensional bee to get to me, because that, that lasso blocks it. No matter how the bee tries, the bee is blocked by that, by that lasso. So I can rest relief. Phew, okay. And now the question is... Is there a way to allow the bee to escape without actually touching the bee? Because if you touch the bee, even as a three-dimensional creature, you will be poisoned and die. So you, you can't even touch the bee. So could you do this without touching the bee? And I want, I want another volunteer from the studio audience. Someone wants to volunteer really fast and help me out. Thank you. Okay, great, great, great. And I forgot, what was your name again? David. David, give a hand for David. Just jump over. Just jump over. Thanks, man. David's studying linguistics, aren't you? All right, good. Okay, so I want you to come over here. Now, you can't touch the bee. Do you understand? Yeah. Okay. And the question is, 
Is there a way that you can allow the bee to escape? Okay, exactly. Okay, now he did that very fast. I'm going to ask him to do it slower. And just grab a little piece of it. Don't grab the whole thing. Okay, just grab a little tea piece. Okay, okay, no, it's, okay, so stop right there. Can you see that? Now, I want you to look at it, not from your vantage point, but from the vantage point of the two-dimensional me. What does that look like now? It's open, someone said, right? I mean, look, and from the two-dimensional point of view, all of a sudden, this, this sealed rope just disappeared. Now, it wasn't cut. Do you know where the, the rope is? It's dangling in this extra degree of freedom, which is the stuff that's hovering over, right? That's what David's doing, he's hovering it over. But the bee doesn't know about hovering or extra dimensions or anything. The bee is now free to fly right out. And then that's it. You see, and now, in my last sight before I go down, if you gently let that back in, what would the illusion be as I watch that? It would just fuse back together. It would magically fuse together. It would be this like, amazing illusion, and then i die. So that's not so good. All right, give a hand for David. Thanks, man. That was awesome. Wait here. Here's for you. Here. Take a look. So it's weird. And if you think about it, if I draw you kind of a, a side view, here's the world. Here's the world of two dimensions. And then here is that rope. And then David kind of dangled it up out of that world. And so from my eyeball, it looked like I saw these two points. But I really didn't see the two points. It continued, but it continued in a world that I couldn't see. Does everyone see that? Okay, so what would that look like in our world if you wanted to actually enact this? Well, the way you would do this, here's a, here's a way of doing it. So here's a sealed rope that I brought from Massachusetts. You can see I, it's all sealed up. It's a loop. And inside the loop, there's a knot. And as you know, and it's actually a mathematical fact, there's no way to just take this and kind of twist it a little bit and unknot it. The only way you could unknot this if you want to uh, right now in this world is to take a pair of scissors like these, although I defy you to use these to do this, but pretend you're imaginative people, and cut, cut, and then you could unknot it. But what if we don't cut? What if we don't cut? In fact, uh, what's your name? Joanna, can you hold the scissors for me and hold them really high up in the air so everyone can see them? Just keep them really high up in the air. Okay, so Joanna's holding up the scissors. I'm going to stand really far away from her, so I'm never going to cut the rope because she has the scissors. And now how could I actually unknot this? Well, I could somehow grab a piece of this in the fourth dimension, just like David did in this example. If I were to be able to kind of snare a piece of this rope in the fourth dimension, what would it look like? What would the rope look like then? It would kind of look cut, but is it cut? No, it's not cut. It would just kind of disappear. I'm going to try to do this right now live. This is not so easy. Uh, scissors high. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Joanna, you're supposed to help me. All right, so I'm not going to cut the rope. Joanna has the scissors. Here we go. I'm going to push a piece of this into a fourth dimension. Oh, goodness, I hope this works. Okay, now... It looks like the rope has been cut. But has the rope been cut? <laughs> now that was not nice. That was not friendly. Of course not, because Joanna has the scissors way over there. This rope is still sealed, but the piece that we don't see is dangling where? In this extra degree of freedom in the fourth dimension. But from our point of view, just like the bee was able to escape and bite me, here, I don't care where the rope is. It looks open, and so I just do this. Very, very nice. And now, if I want to have this all appear back in my world, and I have that loop that we don't see, that piece that we don't see, drop back into our world, what would the illusion be? Joanna, hi. Thank you. What would the illusion be? The illusion would be that the rope seals up. But was the, was the rope really sealing up before? No, it was just being let back into our world. And if we do that here, what would the illusion be? The illusion would be that the rope comes together and seems to seal up. But it was never cut. It was never cut. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. No, stop. Stop. No, stop it. Stop it. Give a hand for Joanna, though. Thanks, Joanna. That was awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks. Great. Okay. So now you've got intuition. You've got intuition to a world that you can't see, an invisible world. And now I'm going to challenge you to actually start to build things in this world. So let's build a geometric object. And the nicest thing and the simplest thing we could build would be to build a cube. 
So I want us to think about what it would be like to build a cube. So I want to build a four-dimensional cube. If you're going to build a four-dimensional cube, which, by the way, sounds really hard, what would you do? Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't do it. So you already are thinking like a mathematician. Right. So let's build a smaller dimensional cube. Where would you like to start? Two-dimensional cube? Please. That's way too advanced. A zero-dimensional cube, you always start at zero. It's great, because if someone asks you a question, if it's happening in zero-dimensional space, the answer is always the same. What is a zero-dimensional cube? It's a dot! It's so cool. Artist rendition. Here is a 3D artist rendition of a cube. This is pointing to a real cube. It hurts. A cube is painful in zero dimensions. Now. How do we go from a zero-dimensional cube to a one-dimensional cube? Here's the recipe I want you to consider. I want you to take your zero-dimensional cube, and I want you to imagine an ink pad. You know an ink pad that you could put a stamp on and stamp, like it says, you know, fragile? I want you to imagine an ink pad, and I want you to take your zero-dimensional cube, and I want you to ink it up on the ink pad. Ink it up. And then I want you to take it, and I want you just to drag it, one unit, in a particular new direction and then stop. And what I sweep out, that residue of ink that is left, that actually forms a one-dimensional cube. So a one-dimensional cube would be also known as a, a line segment, exactly. So a one-dimensional cube, you ink up and drag. That's what you've got to remember from this talk. When life gets you down, ink up and drag. And I happen to have one right here. So this is a one-dimensional cube. And you can see it's a, it's a zero-dimensional cube that's been inked up and dragged. OK, now we're rolling. OK, now this is going to be fun. So what do we do now? To build a two-dimensional cube, which is something that's very familiar to you, I want you to tell me how to do it. Don't tell me what it is. I want you to tell me how to do it. Someone volunteer from the studio audience. Yes, please. What's your name? Eric. Eric. OK, go ahead, Eric. What do I first do? Where do I put this? OK, ink it up. So first I take this and I ink up the whole thing. So it's all inky, OK? And then what do I do, Eric? And you drag it in a perpendicular new direction that we haven't seen exactly one unit. Here you go. You ready? I'm going to sweep it out. Do you see it? I'm actually sweeping out right now live a two-dimensional cube. Can you see it's like a movie? Can you see it? It's also known as a square. Exactly. So a two-dimensional cube would be a square. And you're saying, well, OK, this drawing is not very good. Well, I agree. But I actually built you one. Look at that. Now, that is a very attractive two-dimensional cube. Do you see it? Whoop, whoop. It's exactly what I sweeped out. Thank you. All right, so now, now how do I get a three-dimensional cube? All right, someone else, yell out and tell me what to do. Yes, what's your name? Hayden. So I take this two-dimensional cube, known as a square, and I ink it up. Go ahead. I dr drag it. I drag it, in this case, up. So I drag it in a new perpendicular direction, one unit. Here we go. I'm going to do it for you now, right now, live. It's inked up, inked up. OK, watching. Here we go. Now I'm making a movie. Do you see the movie? But can you see what's happening? You're actually sweeping out a regular cube that you know and love. And so now that's going to be hard to draw here, by the way. I'm going to try to draw it right now live. But I can't because this paper doesn't have enough dimensions. So I'm going to draw an artist's rendition, which, by the way, I think is pretty good. Because you look at that and you go, oh, wow, Ed, that is like a brilliant 3D cube. It's true. But just take a second to realize the bias that we carry. Look at that picture with your raw, naked eyes. Don't look at it with your 3D eyes. Just look at it with your literal eyes. It's not a cube. Lines are intersecting. Angles aren't all 90 degrees. It's all kind of weird, isn't it? But yet, when you look at it with your usual eyes, it kind of pops out. There's a popping effect. And you know what that means. If you want to build an actual 3D cube, you've got to take the square, and you've got to do this. And I've done that for you. And you'd get this. So this is what you'd get. You'd get a regular old-fashioned cube. This is great. Well, now you see what to do. 
So how do we do a four-dimensional cube? All right, someone else, someone volunteer. Way in the back. What's your name? Gilbert? Okay, go ahead. Tell me. What's that? Yeah, actually, that's a fantastic word. Submerge it in ink. He doesn't want it. Gilbert doesn't want to just ink up the sides. He wants to ink up the totality of it. Imagine that this is a sponge. You have to suck ink up into all the points inside of it. And then do what, Gilbert? And drag it in a new perpendicular direction. Now, this is hard. Because I've got no more to show you. But you've got to use your imagination. This is going to be like the perspective drawing like that. Are you ready? I'm doing it for you right now live. It's perspective now. It's not really at a right angle, but you have to pretend it's a right angle. Can you see it? Can you see it? I could even draw it for you. What you do is you take a cube and you drag it. And then you just have to show the dragging by linking the corresponding vertices. Now it's really, really crazy because that's a two-dimensional picture of a four-dimensional object. A better picture would be a three-dimensional picture of a four-dimensional object. That would be the analog of this drawing right here. So I know what you're thinking. You're saying, okay, Ed, behind the door you've got a four-dimensional cube. Well, I don't. I have it here. So I made this. This is a skeleton of a four-dimensional cube. This is a three-dimensional photograph of a four-dimensional cube. And check it out. Do you see it? Here's a cube, and I've dragged it. Do you see it? And you look at this, and you go, Ed, I love it. It's beautiful. You're a great artist. But it doesn't make any sense, because things are going through each other. A cube shouldn't be going through each other. And all these angles are weird. Well, just look back at that three-dimensional drawing and look at that with your naked, raw eyes. It's not right either. This doesn't look right because you're not used to looking at four-dimensional things. Four-dimensional, three-dimensional perspective of four-dimensional things. But this fits perfectly together just like that crazy picture does there, though you're more familiar with that. This is less familiar, but you could see this is the exact analog. So this is kind of cool. So you could actually build all sorts of dimensional cubes that you want. By the way, how many faces would this have? Oh my. Okay, so forget that. Uh, but let's think about how many faces, which just means like the, the ends of it, the ends of it. Well, in the one dimensional cube, the number of faces, just these endpoints, that would be two. In the two dimensional cube, how many faces would you have? That would be the sides. That would be four. And those of you who tend to gamble will know how many faces a three dimensional cube has. Six. That's not good that you know that. And now, even though the fourth dimension is an invisible world, who in this room who's not a math person would like to yell out a guess as to how many cubular faces the four-dimensional cube has? Eight. Now think about that. You can't see it. It's invisible. And yet now, through your mathematical thinking, you're able to tell me things about this. Specific things. And there are indeed eight cubular faces. It's absolutely cool. Now, it's hard to see them here. In fact, the six faces are hard to see here. And it's because there's not enough room to put it all together. So let me actually show you how I could show you a perfect, absolutely perfect, three-dimensional cube drawn on a piece of paper. All the angles will be right angles. And all the sides will be the same length. And you're saying, Ed, that's impossible, because you just said it's impossible, and you're always right. Well, let me show you. Check it out. I'm going to draw you a perfect three-dimensional cube. All the faces will be square. Everything will be right angles. Here I go. I'm going to do the impossible. That's a good start. Notice each of these things is a square. It's hard for me to draw. I'm kind of bending down here. Each of these things is a perfect square. Everything is 90 degrees. It's a perfect cube. Now, assembly is required. 
You have to assemble it. I never said it, it wasn't free of assembly. You've got to do it. Batteries are included, but you have to assemble it. And all I've got to do is tell you how to glue it up. So, for example, where should this edge get glued to? Exactly, this one. And this edge should get glued to here. In fact, this is a real hard one. Anyone want to guess where does that edge get glued to? This is tricky. Wow, you guys are awesome. Yeah, exactly, right here. And so forth and so on. So with those instructions, that's a perfect cube, but it's unfolded. So what would it look like to build a similar thing with a, with a four-dimensional cube? I'm going to do it for you right now live. And I want you to see that I will never erase anything. I'm going to use this pen. I'm going to unfold for you a four-dimensional cube. And I'm not going to erase anything. Are you ready? Oh, I don't want to use red. Why would I use red? That would be a very silly idea. I'm going to use black. Okay, here we go. I'm unfolding right now live a four-dimensional cube. You're watching it live. And there will be no erasing and there will be no errors. Wow, you're saying, we're really impressed by this, Ed. How do you do it? And the answer is practice. Now it's getting interesting. You see, now you're getting all excited. Wow. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. That's very nice. Thank you. Now, look at it. Do you see all the cubes? Let's check it out. So, I've got the waistband, one, two, three, four, and then five, six, seven. Oh, seven. Um, we said eight. Okay. Uh, anyone? What? Here's what I heard. Here's what I heard. What? There's an invisible cube that we can't see that's actually blocked by the waistline. And in fact, you can see that better in this picture. If we were a two-dimensional creature, notice that we would not see that cube. We'd see this cube, we'd see that cube, but we couldn't see that one. It's blocked. And similarly, that eighth cube is blocked. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And they're all there. So you can see the cubes. And now you have to tell me how to glue the faces together. And you can actually produce this. So it's really cool. There are different vantage points. There are different ways of actually looking at the world. And now you are experts in the fourth dimension. So congratulations. That's awesome. And now what I want to do is I want us to return. You thought I forgot, but I didn't. I want us to return to um, the title. And I want us now to take this experience that we've had, and I want to show you that when you look at any discipline, math, or language, or history, or anthropology, or biology, or anything, when you discover the lessons that it has to offer, often you can see other things in greater clarity. And in this case, I want to conclude by taking a look at some works of art. Some works of art. So... Uh, in that direction. Let me see if I can do this. I'm going to show you some images. I'm going to show you three images. They're going to be in reverse chronological order. So I'm going to show you the most recent one first, which is by Salvador Dali. And you know Salvador Dali is kind of this crazy guy, right? He would you know, paint clocks that are all melted and stuff. He would take things that, that are familiar and iconic and kind of challenge us and, and force us to look at it differently. So here is this first image of Salvador Dali. The crucifixion Corpus hypercubicus. Now look what Dolly's doing here. He's realizing that we could view the cross as an unfolded cube. And if we think that way, then he's challenging us to say, well, if we're going to think about God or religion in general as this extra thing, as this thing that's beyond us, then why not think of it as a fourth dimension? And if we think that way then in fact the cross is replaced by this thing. Which when you see this, if you've seen it before, you might say, oh wow, it's just a really big cross. But now you see what it is. It's an unfolded four-dimensional cube. And in fact, you notice you put a little space there. So unlike my drawings, you can actually count all eight. One, two, you see the three? Four, five, six, seven, eight. 
So now we look at this image and it has a different meaning to us. Dali is challenging us to think about God as a, as a fourth dimension or as something that lives up in a world that, that's difficult for us to see in our everyday lives, potentially. It's a different mindset just by thinking mathematically. Now, if we go a little bit further back in time, we go to Marcel Duchamp, nude descending a staircase, number two. So, okay, there's a, there's a nude involved, and so young people don't look at this. But it's okay, it's art, so I think it's okay. Now, you look at this and you go, huh? But just think about how we build cubes. This is a nude that has been inked up and dragged down the stairs. Do you see it? You're seeing kind of the action shots, right? There's the nude, and then she's going down the stairs. And you're seeing all those shots, just as when I took this and I inked it up and dragged it. So here, we're seeing Ducharme capturing the fourth dimension via time. And every time I did this example where I said, look, I'm making like a little movie and you can see it, that's exactly what Duchamp is doing in his painting. And if we go back a little further, we come to Manet. And I think this is a really great painting. I want us to spend just two minutes on this. Uh, a bar at the Folie Bourget. Now, this is an extremely famous painting. This, in fact, was one of his last... Uh, really big paintings before he died. He died, I think, in 1883. So he, he really just finished this up, and that was it. He called it quits. And so you look at this painting, and it really is interesting. So let's just look at it together for a second. So first of all, you know, what do you see? This is what art historians always challenge you. What do you see? Well, we see this really, really big party. And this is a party in France in the late uh, 1800s. And this is a big, swanky party. You can see, first of all, all the people are all dressed up. You can see this fancy chandelier here. And what's really of note is look at these things. You take these for granted, but these are electric lights. And in 1882, it was a really, really big deal to have electric lights. This is a swanky party. This is the kind of party you want to be invited to. This is an A-list party, ladies and gentlemen, right here. You're looking at it. They're all having fun. If you look really closely, it's almost a decadent party. I mean, it's in France, after all. What do you expect? Look, there's a trapeze person right here doing God knows what. You can't, can't even really see them. I mean, who knows what's going on? It's insane. It's insane, ladies and gentlemen. That's the kind of craziness that's going on in this painting. And now look at the subject. And you see this very sad face. And here's this party going on. Everyone's happy. And you see this, this barmaid who's really just sad. There's a juxtaposition. What's going on here? Well, then you look a little bit closer. And it's actually not that bad of a reproduction here. You see all this junk in the painting. See that junk there? You think it's kind of like, oh, that's from the JPEG. No, this is the painting. It turns out that we're not actually looking at the party. In fact, that's a mirror. You're the party. The party is you. And she's looking at the party. And you're seeing a reflection of that. Now, what's interesting is that art historians tell us that in early sketches of this work, Manet, if you look at this really closely, you go, wait a minute, something is weird here. Because if that's a mirror... This is not, that's not the right thing, right? She should, that reflection should be like right behind her, right? And there she is, the reflection in the mirror, talking to a guy. And if you look even closer, you see it's even worse because see these four bottles of champagne? Look right behind. Do you see them here? No. So maybe Manet is going really crazy because he's about to die, you know, and so that's why. No, it's not because if you look at early sketches of this painting, you will see the bottles here and you will see her right where she's supposed to be. He deliberately did this. Why? Well, here's my interpretation. My interpretation is that look at her. She is trapped by the canvas. Behind her is this mirror that she can't get past. And in front of her is this bar. She is literally living on the surface of the canvas. She can't go back. She can't come close. She's locked into this. She is a two-dimensional creature. And what Manet is offering to us, if we want to open our minds to it, is the possibility of an extra degree of freedom for her. And so you're seeing her through the extra degree of freedom of time. And here she is, either earlier or later in the, in the evening, talking to someone. Those bottles of champagne were placed here later, and so they weren't there earlier, and so forth. Through a mathematical lens, all of a sudden you can look at things and see them differently. I'm not saying this is correct, 
Manet is dead, and we don't know. And in fact, actually, scholars tell us that in 1882, it was a little bit early for people to be depicting fourth dimension. So is it there or not? I'm not saying it's the fourth dimension, but we're definitely seeing an interplay between space and time. And Manet is challenging us to think about extra degrees of freedom. So now, in the last couple of minutes, I want to come back to the, the first part of my talk. You see, you thought I forgot about the first title, but I didn't. This is the important one. So the art of exploring invisible worlds. Now, you see, you might think, okay, Ed, I, I see what you're trying to do. Uh, this is a talk about seeing the fourth dimension, which is an invisible world. No, who cares? Then you're saying, oh, okay, okay, I get it. Oh, this is a really great talk, Ed, because what you're trying to say is you learn math and you can see, like, art better. Yeah, no, I don't care about that either. But it is the case that when you immerse yourself in the, in the ideas, in the big ideas, in the fundamental concrete ideas of one area, you can use that as a lens to better see other areas. That's true, and that's fantastic. But that's not the point of my talk. So what is the point of my talk? You've got to let all that go. This talk is not about teaching. This talk is about learning. What are the invisible worlds that are available for us at our disposal? It's the modes of thinking. It's how people look at the world when they're mathematicians and how people look at the world when they're anthropologists or sociologists or biologists or chemists or historians or English professors. Every avenue of human thought that we can embrace will offer us a new vantage point to look at everything. And those are invisible. They're not going to be on the test, it turns out. But it's the way that the faculty think about their area. It's invisible, but if you embrace it, then all of a sudden you can see things that are invisible to everyone else. And that's what leadership is all about. And that's what making progress and doing great works is all about. is to look out in the world with all these different filters that you now have and see that world in a richer way. See things that are invisible to everyone else, whether they're novel solutions to problems that have been plaguing people, whether it's an innovative technology to do something. The creativity and imagination that comes forth from a true education that you could get at Baylor, comes forth by embracing the invisible lessons. So I challenge you, when you're talking to people, whether it's to your cohort, whether you're faculty talking to faculty, whether you're students talking to students, and whether you're faculty students talking to each other, I challenge all of you in all those directions to ask, how is this person thinking about these things? How is this person, how is a math person looking at an equation? How is an art historian looking at a painting? Put yourself in that vantage point and you will begin to see worlds in totally new ways. And you will make the invisible visible. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks.